Okay, welcome to Village Church today. How are we all doing? Maybe I'll uh, walk back and we'll try that again. How are we all doing this morning? <laughs> good, 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 good. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Village Surrey and executive pastor of our creative teams. Um, one thing I just wanted to let you know about uh, before we begin in our uh, psalm series this morning was uh, we have camps coming up in the summer, and so for parents, being able to save the dates is important, but also there's an important date coming up to register your kids for the Quanos camp that we do in conjunction with Camp Quanos. Quanos is a great camp, probably the best camp in all of Western Canada, and we combine with them to do a week. It's juniors three-week on August 9 to 14, and if your kids are going into grade four or five next September, we want you to be at that camp. We're gonna have staff there, a whole bunch of kids and families from Village Church. It's gonna be a great place to go this summer. Registration, though, opens January 3rd, so that's coming up real fast at 9 a.m., and the camps do tend to sell out pretty quickly, so you'll wanna get on top of that. You can go to thisisvillagechurch.com slash Kwanos to register. What we're gonna do this morning in our Psalm series is something a little different. We're going to look at Psalm 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me this morning. And we're going to break up the morning into three sections because the Psalm itself actually breaks up into three or so sections. And we're going to have a chance to respond in worship in between each section because I really want us to be able to focus on what the themes are and apply that and meditate on that as we work through the psalm rather than just kind of get a big dump of the psalm all at you at once and then try and walk away with bits and pieces of it. I want us to engage in the psalm as much as we can this morning. Up until three years ago, I never thought I would go to India. In fact, I made up my mind that I was willing to go anywhere God wanted me to go on a global trip, except for India. Anywhere else in the world, just not India. But God obviously thought that was funny. So when we were putting together the Village Golf Tournament, uh, the second one, and uh, we were working with International Justice Mission, God gave me a heart and a passion for the work International Justice Mission was doing in Guess where? India. India. So since then, I've been able to spend time with the team there to become friends actually with the IGM team in Kolkata, India, with whom Village Church partners. I've been to the slums, the red light districts, touring the city to see firsthand the heartbreaking world of underaged sex trafficking. These are girls that are caught in a cycle of forced prostitution where you know, many of them are actually born, live, and then die in the same street. And all they know their entire life is a life of selling their bodies for powerful slave owners. It's incredibly heartbreaking stuff. But the team in Calcutta that's fighting this is incredible. They are very, very talented. They are relentless in their pursuit of justice, and it's astounding to work with them. But what I can't get over, what I could never get over when I visited was how this team copes. How do they cope? They're making such a huge impact in rescuing girls, in changing the system, but they also have to endure knowing that they aren't saving everyone. How on earth do they show up with confidence 
and the joy that they have every single day knowing that. Because what struck me most in my interactions with them has been their hope and their joy. Last year, I was fortunate enough to meet the team in Dallas, Texas. Uh, they had an IJM conference there, and a few of us from Village Church went down to meet with them. It was the first time many of the team had actually been outside of India at all. So we wanted to make sure they got a true taste of America. So, of course, we took them out for a night of Top Golf. Now, I don't know if you know what Top Golf is, but Top Golf is basically this thing where if you imagine that um, uh, cosmic bowling has a baby with uh, an all-you-can-eat chicken wing sports bar, and they have that baby at a driving range. That is what Top Golf is like. It's wings, it's driving range stuff, it's lights, it's screens, it's pretty crazy. But what was really crazy was watching a team of Indians who had never touched golf clubs in their life try to make their best cricket swings while a whole bunch of onlooking and bewildered Texans were puzzled. It was pretty funny, actually, and they laughed and we laughed and we had an amazing time that night. But what I went away thinking was how? How can they laugh? How can they laugh? How can they spend a night at Top Golf, just pounding away the chicken wings, laughing hysterically, knowing what was going on at home? Well, in the first two verses of Psalm 5, the psalmist asks God to do three things, and we're going to look at that quickly. So in uh, Psalm 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Now, the Hebrew words for these three asks are azan, bin, and kashab. Azan, this is uh, how we translated to give ear. It actually means, in the Hebrew, it means to broaden out the ear to listen. This is an interesting image. It's actually turning the ear and stretching it out so that you can have a posture of listening. There's an intentionality there. The psalmist wants to know, will God make an effort to not only hear, but listen to what he's going to say? The second word, bean, which we translate consider in the passage, means to understand, to be attentive, or to perceive an active kind of listening where what God hears, he actually listens to and processes. The third Hebrew word here is kashab, which we translate as to give attention. It actually means to prick up the ears, that idea of uh, pricking up your ears to truly turn your attention and focus on something, to focus on the speaker. What we're getting at here is that the psalmist needs God to not only be aware, but to actually engage, to take his prayers seriously. Now, I am very guilty at being very, very bad at engaging at times, especially if there is a game on TV. Now, it's not uncommon. I'll be watching some sports game. It could be a hockey game. It could be a basketball game. It could be a baseball game. Uh, it could be a cricket match, a soccer match. It could be literally sailing competition happening on TV, and I have to watch it, and I have to see it through to the end because I suddenly have a rooting interest in what boat is going to win. 
That's just how I am. I like sports. But what will often happen is I'm partway through watching the game, and I'll notice that my wife, Jenny, has been talking to me for about three minutes. And then I need to start doing some serious detective work. I start thinking to myself and, and listening to her tone and thinking, is she just giving me information right now or is there actually a question coming at the end of this? Because if I determine there's a question coming, then I start to sweat. Now, she's figured this out because when my answer to her question is, yes, that's a great idea. I think you should definitely do whatever you think is best. She knows I haven't listened to one word she said. And so she turns to me and gives me that look, the look that says, it's time to turn off the game. And then she tries again. I'm bad at that, but God is not. The psalmist asks God to do these things. So does he. Note in verse 3, he says, O Lord, in the morning, the whole psalm turns right here. O Lord, in the morning, you hear my voice. And here's where having good biblical theology can help us. You see, the Bible is very clear that God hears, but even more than hearing, he is all-knowing. He already knows. The Hebrew word in verse 3 is shema, a very famous, huge word in the Old Testament, shema, which means not just to hear, but to listen and to know. Now, we're going to get technical. What we call this, when you know everything, is being omniscient. But there's a depth to what omniscience in the Bible truly means that I think we often miss. God's omniscience means he knows everything, sure, but that means everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen. And he doesn't just find that information if he thinks hard enough about it. He actually has all of that information at the front of his mind at all times. That's what it means to be omniscient. So in every moment, he knows everything about the past, the present, and the future, about you and everything else. In Exodus 2, we read uh, one of the most important moments of the whole Old Testament of God hearing and knowing, Shema and knowing everything. When his people are crying out to him from slavery under the Egyptians, Again, the themes of slaves and injustice. But the last verse of Exodus, of Exodus chapter 2, tells us that when God's people are crying out to him in their distress, that God hears and God knows. And he always did. See, he knows it all. He knew in his mind everything in the story of Israel from Abraham and the patriarchs that have led up to this moment of imminent salvation and deliverance for the people of Israel under Egypt. And then he also knows in his mind everything that's going to come afterwards, all the way to Christ and the cross and the establishment of the church. He knows all of that information when he delivers them from Egypt. What this practically means for you and me is that he's actually aware of your whole story your whole past, your whole present, and your whole future in every single moment with you. That means you can get over trying to impress him. Think about it. When he says he loves you, like in the most famous Bible verse of all time, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he says that knowing every way that you have let him down, you're currently letting him down, and that you will 
let him down. What an assurance we have, an assurance that should produce faith and should ultimately produce joy. Now, you might think that the word joy is a bit of a weak payoff, but joy, meaning being able to go through life with a positivity and a fulfillment because of your assurance in him. Joy because your life doesn't need to become a series of moral decisions where you're doing everything in your power just to stay okay with God, to not lose his love for you. In the 90s, when I grew up, this was all about checking your WWJD bracelet. This was your what would Jesus do bracelet that you wore on your, on your wrist and so that in every moment you could be reminded and look at your bracelet and go, oh my goodness, in this situation, what would Jesus do? I need to do the right thing. But that was a little bit wrong because that was all about how can I stay on the right side with God? But your relationship with him is something that is in his hands, not ours. That's why we can join the psalmist in verse 2 by confidently calling him our king and our God because he is the one who is sovereignly in control of your relationship with him and it isn't down to your efforts moment by moment. That would be a crushing weight for you and me to try and bear and it frankly isn't even biblical. Now, in the ancient Near East, most cultures, most uh, nations, they had gods and they had kings. The Israelites were very weird in at least the early uh, portion of their story because they didn't even have a king until later when they went against God. They viewed God as both their god and their king. Um, It's easier to separate the two, like Israel would eventually do, because gods were simply something that you pacified, while a king was something that needed your allegiance. So which is it for you? Do you pacify God by showing up for church today? Do you pacify God by serving on a team? Do you pacify God by not getting too drunk? Do you pacify God by not cheating on your spouse? Well, God doesn't want you to pacify him. He wants your heart. He wants your full allegiance. For most of us, our allegiance is to ourselves. And that's why we love the separation of God and King. But Psalm 5 is confronting us today. Are you actively aligning your entire life with what the New Testament calls abiding in him? Giving Jesus your full allegiance and living in a way where his affections and desires become yours. Now, you might ask, after all this talk about God knowing everything, that if he knows everything, why do we bother to pray to him? Why does the psalmist actually bother to write Psalm 5? We'll look at verse 3 again. The psalmist confirms that God does hear him, and then he prepares a sacrifice and watches. The answer is our dependence. You see, God knew what Job was going through in his story when he lost his fortune, his family, and his health. But he wanted Job to exercise trust and dependence in the relationship in order to deepen it. God knew that my mom 
had cancer two years ago and that she would die shortly after her diagnosis. But he wanted her to lean into him, to show dependence on him so that he could deepen the relationship with her into eternity. This is because there is literally nothing better for you and me today than dependence on God. So whatever you're hesitating to bring him into right now in your life, whether it's your business, whether it's lust issues that you're hiding, your dependence on things like substances or the approval of others, whatever it is in your life, you can stop shutting him out because he's actually heard you before you've even prayed. You no longer need to carry those burdens. God, this morning, I pray that your spirit would make us aware of that truth. That we can breathe, we can relax, and we can give it to you today. God, thank you for being faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses uh, 4, 5, and 6 are fascinating verses. So this is uh, really interesting stuff. And we're going to uh, learn a little bit about Hebrew poetry as we do these three verses. Um, They deploy this Hebrew poetic device called parallelism. So we're going to learn about Hebrew poetry together. And let me just sort of geek out a little bit here because I'm really into this sort of stuff. And uh, you're going to come along for the ride. But uh, I actually think it's very important. It's important because we don't just want you to come to the psalm series, listen to us up here, talk to you about a bunch of psalms for, you know, a half a year or a year. And then you go away and you haven't learned anything about how to engage and read this stuff on your own. But I really want you to understand how to read the Psalms better on your own after the series. So that's what we're going to do a little bit of right now. Um, Okay. In English poetry, things are based on rhyme. That's kind of the, the foundation of English poetry. But for ancient Hebrew poetry, rhyme is not important. Instead, what is important is parallelism. So... Um, you notice in these three verses, in verses four, five, and six, we get three sets of parallels. Each verse contains a thought, and then it repeats that thought in different words. Each of these little combinations of repeated ideas is called a bicolon, two phrases that, ex- that express parallel ideas. The point being, each parallel emphasizes and clarifies the theme that the poet or the writer is trying to get across. So, what is the theme being emphasized here in verses 4, 5, and 6? In a nutshell, it's God hates evil and will judge it. God hates evil and will judge it. But notice that it's not only highlighted through one parallel, it's highlighted three parallels in a row which means it's of major, major emphasis to astute Old Testament readers like you and me. Let's look at the theology we learn in these three parallels. Verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You see, there are two thoughts expressing the same thing in different language. The theme is God is not evil. He is perfectly moral and just. Verse 5, 
The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. The theme, God will not allow those who do evil to have access to him. And then in verse six, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The theme, God will destroy evil and those who do it. Now, this is critical theology in three verses. And part of what makes the Psalms so great is because they are packed with such important theology. On the one hand, how else could those fighting underage sex trafficking in Calcutta have any hope if the all-knowing and omniscient God wasn't also good? But on the other hand, this passage poses a problem for us as human beings, because we are all wicked and now stand under God's perfect judgment. It's a reality we must confront. I have eight-month-old identical twin boys. I don't have to teach them to steal toys away from each other. It's just how they are. It's very natural to their wicked little, cute, lovable hearts, they steal. Something that I've also realized in having these boys is that I am quickly amassing a collection of toys that I once owned myself and have thrown out once myself in my life, but now I'm excited about again and I'm repurchasing, well, I mean, my parents would have purchased it for me the first time, but I'm purchasing at a much higher dollar value and it's getting very, very expensive. Now, one of the items I bought for the boys this year was a vintage He-Man figurine, because when I grew up, He-Man was the thing. He-Man, just like I had. Now, these toys aren't even close to being age-appropriate for these boys, but I figure those are suggestions. So, you know what Asher wants to play with when Jude is holding the He-Man? He wants the He-Man. So naturally, for Christmas, I gave them a Skeletor figurine because now they have two and they can share. Again, it's becoming very expensive. But the point is none of us are morally perfect beings. We're selfish, we're vain, and by extension, we are standing under the moral judgment of God, a God who knows everything, who cannot stand for evil and will destroy it. It sounds harsh, very harsh to our super tolerant cultural moment. But honestly, a judge who is passionate about destroying evil and holding all injustice to full account with no excuses, that doesn't sound harsh to the people in Calcutta who I've met who've been rescued out of a life of slavery in sex trafficking. Do you think they cringe at the idea of a God who would hold injustice and evil to full account, no matter what, with no excuses? No, they're crying out for that exact kind of justice and that exact kind of God. But what pulls this section together is verse seven. And we should be very, very, very thankful for verse seven. 
Verse seven should turn us into passionate worshipers because there is a way out for us because of God's love. Hesed is the Hebrew word used in verse seven, which is another huge word in the Old Testament. And it represents all of God's goodness. The wicked cannot stand before him. No, but you and I, even though we are wicked, can through his good grace because of God's hesed. We do not simply force our way into God's house. No, we have access only because he invites us in. And for you and me, two and a half thousand years probably after this psalm was written, that invitation is through the way of the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, says the gospel writer John. And greater love does not exist apart from the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. This was the obedience of Jesus to the will of the Father, that he would take the just punishment for wickedness in our place. And of course, this isn't some metaphorical justice, some metaphorical kind of uh, punishment where God just declares everyone okay. It's real punishment, or else what the psalmist says in Psalm 5 wouldn't actually be true. There has to be real consequence. Christ takes that real judgment for our wickedness. So the Father can then at once judge our wickedness and allow us to dwell with him and to enter his house as adopted sons and daughters for all of eternity. This is what it's all about. This is the gospel and why we exist as village church. So how do we respond to such a demonstration by God? In verse 7, the psalmist responds to the overwhelming love and justice of God by bowing to him. Look at verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Again, this bowing in the Hebrew is a submissive action, shaka like one would lay themselves out, fully prone before a powerful king, full submission to the authority of that king. J.I. Packer rightly says that theology should produce doxology, which is just another word for worship. So does your position towards God reflect the truth of what he's actually done for you? If you don't come to him fully submissive, fully prone before his throne, why would you expect a worship experience or a relationship with him that can only come about if you have that posture? What is it that you refuse to submit to him? Do you come to his throne only bowing one knee? Why? If what he's done is real, why fear? Come to him honestly but come with a posture of submission. And this is only possible if your meditation is constantly on the cross. If the cross isn't constantly in your mind, it is impossible to respond in full submission because it's the power of the gospel that compels you to see things in this way. It's not what would Jesus do at every moment of your life, It's what has Jesus done that should guide you through each 
of the moments of your days. As the band comes to lead us in another song of reflecting on this truth, one of the ways that we do respond is through giving our whole lives, and that includes our finances. And so we're going to take an offering, and this is a chance for you to participate with a part of your life that often we don't. You can do that here right now in the service, or you can do that outside in the lobby after or online. But this is about full submission with our whole lives and not bowing one knee, but two. Okay, so have you ever wondered why God saves? Why has he saved you? If you're a Christian, why has he bothered to do that? What is the reason? What is the purpose? It might seem like a, an obvious question, but I don't know how often we actually try and understand that biblically. Why has he saved you? What is the purpose? The Bible says it's so that you would abide in him, that you would abide in him, that you would participate in the work he is doing in the world. For us, this is Christ. You have been saved so that you would abide in Christ and participate in his work in the world today. Listen to what the psalmist says next in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Now that the psalmist has been granted access to God, his purpose is to walk in his ways, righteous and good ways, but not for the sake of earning something from God. We've already established that. So why? Because it is actually by God working through us that the evil of the world is defeated. Can you imagine a greater purpose for your life than that. Now, here's the practical application. God has asked you to participate in his work, and that work is your work. So just ask the question, what is your life? What is it about? What does it look like? Because that's where God wants your participation. I met with a business owner Last week, we talked about how he's actually been saved by God with the purpose of running his business in a way that participates with the work of Jesus in the world. He doesn't need to look outside of his career or outside of his business to find something holy in order to be doing God's work. He is called to be who God has saved him to be through his work. And the work itself is holy. This is empowering and should be redeeming for us. Now, specifically, as a pastor, I want to speak to the business owners, the business professionals that are here, because God is saying to you that it is your work itself that he's interested in, and he's calling it holy. Many business professionals I know have struggled with how to reconcile their faith and their work life. I think because there's a disconnect often in how the church talks about or views this. 
but that's just because of bad theology. God has wired you and gifted you to be great at business because he's doing a work in redeeming and transforming the business world and whole societies and cultures. I was also lucky enough recently to chat with a banking advisor in our church. He recently realized this whole idea. And so he made some changes to how he would work. He didn't have to change what he did. God had called him into investment banking. But he was going to participate with Christ and the work Christ was doing in it That had to become his new guiding priority. His purpose had shifted, but he was now living into the reality of his calling, his calling in the world, and that gave him a new sense of immense meaning. Of course, this applies to you wherever you are in your life. However God has wired you and what he's wired you for, it also means that the stuff in your life doesn't need to weigh you down. It doesn't need to steal your joy because all of it is a part of the work God is doing. Here's what I mean. If you hit financial hardship, if you hit health issues, if you hit relational breakdowns, this is actually part of the road God is asking you to walk with him. It's actually a pathway to true joy in your life. It's backwards to everything that the prosperity gospel might try and have you believe. But it's only possible because of the incredible theology this psalm has taught us. God is all-knowing. God is just and good. And God is all-powerful. Like the psalmist alludes to in verses 9 and 10, it is up to God only to determine the fate of the wicked and the righteous and no one else. No one holds authority over him. That's the reason why you and I can confidently participate in Christ's work, because you don't have to bear the weight of his work. And so I have no greater message of good news for you today than what Psalm 5 says is the true reality of things. This is God. He does reach graciously to you. You can be invited in and you can approach him. You can live a life of fulfillment and joy knowing that because of the cross, you have been saved to a purpose. Singer Lana Del Rey has a song on her latest album. It's titled, Hope is a Dangerous Thing for a Woman Like Me to Have. Now, she means it in a different way, a little tongue-in-cheek. But the title is actually very true. You see, hope put in the wrong place equals disappointment. Hope put in the wrong place equals disappointment. No one wants a disappointing life. I don't want you to have a disappointing life. God does not want you to have a disappointing life. So where have you put your hope? Jesus is the right place because he will never disappoint you. In verse 11, the psalmist says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. 
that those who love your name may exalt in you. Hope in the right place should produce joy and worship. It's the only way that the team in Calcutta can do the hardest and most heartbreaking work in the entire world with hope and joy. And it's the only way that you will be able to fill that emptiness in your own heart and in your own mind. God, I thank you for the gift, the gift of Psalm 5, and ultimately the gift of your Son, who changes everything for us and to whom we give our praise and our worship this morning.